In the span of six months in 1994, three indigenous teenagers went missing in northern British Columbia. All three would be found murdered. When a team of profilers looked at the cases and determined that these three crimes were possibly linked, the RCMP formed a task force that would change the way missing and murdered Indigenous women cases were investigated. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to the fourth installment of the Third Thursday series. Every third Thursday during 2020, I will be profiling another missing or murdered Indigenous persons case. I know I promised some of you a case from Australia this month, but there have been just a few issues with timing where I wasn't ready and the family was, then I was ready and they weren't. With everything going on in the world right now, that was bound to happen. That episode is still going to air, but it'll be May's episode, and honestly, I think it's for the best. I need a little more time with the historical research here. I don't have a baseline understanding of Aboriginal issues in Australia outside of what I learned from Quigley Down Under, which I am very sure is not a great place to start. Also, I want to thank everyone for doing their best to ignore the background noise in my episodes lately. When it sounds like I thumped the microphone stand a few times, it's because someone ran up or down the stairs. When you hear a voice recording like something out of Ghost Hunters, it's generally one of my children talking in another room. Whenever people can leave my house again, my audio will clean up, and I appreciate your patience until then. So this month, what we're going to do is sort of finish up the episode that kicked off the year. In the first Third Thursday episode, I covered the stories of three missing and murdered Indigenous children, all considered part of the official Highway of Tears slash EPANA task force list. Well, there are three other First Nations girls under 18 on that list, and they are who we are going to be talking about today. These three are grouped together because they all happened within months of each other, and there is strong suspicion the cases are linked. While almost all of my information in this episode actually comes from newspaper archives, I did want to say that I've been reading a book called Highway of Tears by Jessica McDermott. This book is everything you want it to be. There is nothing out there that I've seen that touches this book in thoughtfulness and research or storytelling around the Highway of Tears. If the Highway of Tears is a case that you've been drawn to and you want the whole story, historic context and all, you need to get this book. I actually haven't even finished it yet, and I'm already recommending it. I've only been putting it down because I do have to get some work done. Definitely highly recommend. Again, it's called Highway of Tears, and it's by Jessica McDermott. I got it on the Kindle. You can find it on Amazon. You can probably find it anywhere. The book is a comprehensive look at the Highway of Tears, but let's focus today on our three, Ramona Wilson, Roxanne Tierra, and Alicia Germain. Ramona was the first of the three teenagers to go missing. 
When Ramona Wilson was born, the day after Valentine's Day in 1976, she was the adored and doted on baby of the family, largely because she was a miracle baby. Her mother, Matilda, had been told she couldn't have any more children. So Matilda had grown up in a residential school, having been forcefully removed from her parents at the age of five. She returned home at the age of 12 to parents who were just as traumatized as she had been by this separation. At 15, she got pregnant and married the father of her baby. Over the next eight years, the pair had five children, a daughter, and then four boys. Then Matilda was left a widow at the age of 23. After years of struggling as a young single mother, Matilda found herself in a stable relationship and she wanted another child, but it wasn't happening. Matilda went to the doctor and she was told it was unlikely she would ever get pregnant again. It took time, but Matilda grew to accept this. And then she came down with what she thought was the flu or a stomach bug. But then the next day, she woke up and she was still sick. And then, of course, the next day, she was still sick. She went to the doctor and found out she was actually two months pregnant. This was the baby she wanted so badly, who she thought was never going to come. Growing up in Smithers, British Columbia, which is halfway between Prince George and Prince Rupert, things were tough for the family. Ramona's brothers had run-ins with the police as teenagers and... None of Ramona's older siblings finished high school. But Ramona's life was going on a different path. She mostly avoided the rough crowd at school, and she focused on her studies. She was determined to be the first person in her family to go to college, where she would study to become a psychologist because she wanted to help people. Ramona was also a spiritual young woman. She was trying to reconnect to her culture even though her family had been separated from their tribal roots due to Matilda's removal to residential schools. That's one of the many tragedies of the residential schools. The goal was to remove the influence of the child's family and tribal connections, and it worked far, far too often. Ramona got a job after school as a dishwasher at a diner called Smitty's, but she was actually about to quit at the start of the summer in 1993 because 16-year-old Ramona had landed her dream summer job. She was going to work as a peer counselor. This was perfectly in line with her career goals, and I'm sure it would have looked great on any college application she filled out. On Saturday, June 11th, 1994, Ramona was in great spirits. She had just learned that week that she had gotten the job, and she was going out with friends that night. There was a dance in Hazleton, which is about an hour north of Smithers. She was going to go there to the community center, meet up with some friends, and enjoy the dance. She also had some friends who were hosting graduation parties that weekend, and she planned to go to a few of those. Ramona wasn't a big partier, but of course, you want to go to the graduation parties for your friends. Her uncle saw her earlier in the day and mentioned he was going to be a designated driver that night for anyone who was going to these various parties. 
and he asked her if she was going to need a ride anywhere. It was 1994, so there weren't cell phones just to call someone if you needed a ride, so you had to plan in advance. It doesn't seem like Ramona committed to getting a ride with her uncle, and she was not opposed to hitchhike to get around. That was fairly common at that time in northern British Columbia. But in a town like Smithers, which isn't terribly remote, but is a small town, you often weren't getting in the car with strangers. Ramona would generally just get picked up by someone she knew who was passing by. It's not like she was getting in the car with people she didn't know on the regular. And Ramona, according to one of her friends, was one of the kids that did not hitchhike very often. After eating dinner with her mom and her brother and watching some TV, Ramona packed an overnight bag. She mentioned to her mom that she might end up in Witset, which is halfway between Ramona's house and the dance in Hazleton. Matilda was under the impression that Ramona was going to spend the night with her friend Crystal, who she was meeting at the dance. It was around 9.45 that she left her home. It sounds late, but we also have to remember how far north this is. In June, they're at about 17 hours of sunlight a day, and the sun doesn't set until after 10 p.m. Ramona never made it to the dance at Hazleton. So Crystal assumed she ended up staying with her boyfriend in Whitset. On Sunday, Crystal talked to the boyfriend and found out Ramona hadn't stayed there, and he didn't know where she was either. When he called Ramona's house, Matilda said she was with Crystal. At 16, Crystal's assumption was Ramona used staying at her house as a cover for staying out somewhere else. Though she was worried, she also didn't want to get Ramona in trouble, so she didn't say anything on Sunday. But then Ramona didn't show up for school on Monday. At first, her friends assumed that, especially if she stayed in Witset, that she missed the bus or she slept in. But they were surprised when she didn't show up by the end of the day. The school either didn't call home or they couldn't reach Matilda because Matilda assumed Ramona was at school, that she had stayed at Crystal's house for the weekend and went with her in the morning. Now, if this sounds like a lot of freedom for a 16-year-old, letting her leave Saturday night and just assuming she'll show up where she needs to be Monday morning, it might be too much freedom for some kids. But not for Ramona. She was the 16-year-old who could manage herself. She could manage getting where she needs to be. No one really had to worry about her slacking off, going out and partying too hard, or anything like that. But when the school bell rang at the end of the day and Crystal hadn't seen Ramona, she was worried. When she went to her own after-school job, she called the diner where Ramona worked to see if she had shown up for her shift. Even if Ramona had skipped school for whatever reason, she wouldn't have skipped work. Ramona's coworker told Crystal that she hadn't shown up. This is when Crystal knew something more was going on than just Ramona lying to her mom about where she was. So Crystal called Matilda and told her Ramona had not been to school 
She hadn't been to work. And in fact, Crystal hadn't seen her all weekend. Matilda called the restaurant to confirm that Ramona was a no-show, no-call, and then she went to the RCMP to report her missing. Now, Matilda and her family, they were not unfamiliar with their local RCMP office. Her sons had gotten into trouble as teenagers, and unfortunately, Matilda feels like that influenced how they reacted to Ramona. They just assumed Ramona was just another troublemaker, just another kid Matilda couldn't control. And they basically told Matilda that Ramona would come home when she was ready to. No matter how much Matilda tried to tell them, Ramona wasn't like that. She's not the type to disappear. She wasn't the kid getting in trouble. They wouldn't listen. All of her pleas fell on ears that were unwilling to hear them. Ramona was a teenager staying out without permission, not a missing child, end of story. And this always bothers me. Families are not listened to when it comes to expectations they would have for their child or their missing young adult. No one knows them better than their family. So if Ramona's mom said she wasn't the type to skip school and skip work, then that should have been given some weight. What if Matilda was wrong? What if Ramona was hiding out with her boyfriend? What if she was hanging out at a party? What's the worst-case scenario? Her being found okay? Now let's turn that and say Matilda's right, and Ramona is missing and endangered. What's the worst-case scenario now? What's the worst-case scenario of not looking for her? Well, unfortunately, we're going to find out. But it wasn't that there weren't any searches early on. Matilda found help through the community immediately. And how often have we heard this? Indigenous families having to search and investigate on their own because the authorities will not. This is yet another thread we have seen before. It wasn't until Ramona hadn't been heard from for a week with her bank account and paycheck left untouched, that the RCMP began to take her disappearance more seriously. It was about a week and a half before Ramona was even mentioned in the paper, letting people know to be on the lookout for a missing 16-year-old. Tips and leads did come in, but none of them got them anywhere. Seven months after she went missing... In January 1995, an anonymous tip came in that Ramona's body was near the Smithers Airport. The RCMP went out to the area and they conducted a ground search but found no evidence of Ramona. They put the tip aside, possibly it was just a prank, and they moved on. Then on April 9th, 1995, a group riding ATVs in the wooded area behind the airport came across Ramona's body. She had been missing for 10 months, but her body had been obscured by the natural foliage and overgrowth in the area. Her family did recognize clothing found with the body, but she had to be formally identified through dental records. It appeared she had been there for the 10 months she was missing. A rope and nylon cable ties were found near her body. 
While many of the other Highway of Tears cases are seen as possible stranger abductions or murders, Ramona's case has the hallmarks of someone local. For one thing, the anonymous tip telling police where to find her body. I'm under the impression the person said he was told this information by someone else and not that he had firsthand knowledge of where Ramona was. If that is what he said, we don't know that it's true, since he didn't give his name and he didn't say, as far as we know, who told him this. This call could have come from the killer, someone who couldn't stand thinking of Ramona's body just staying out in the woods forever, especially when it got cold. Serial killers do not care about that sort of thing. Only people known to the victim. Or was the tip someone who Ramona's killer did confide in? That also isn't something random serial killers tend to do. But it is something an inexperienced and possibly guilt-ridden killer would do. Additionally, Ramona was not left somewhere someone would easily stumble on. She was found along trails that are hard to find unless you know the area. Matilda told journalist Eva Holland that she wondered if this wasn't just an accident. If Ramona was hitchhiking or walking along the road, she could have been hit by a drunk driver. That person then panicked and dumped her body rather than reporting it and facing charges. And there was a tip that came in that somewhat supports this theory. The details are vague, but basically, Ramona was at a party at an apartment complex near the airport where she was found. She began walking back toward the highway. This highway would take her up to the dance where Crystal was expecting her. Some partygoers got into a truck after Ramona left, heading in the same direction, and they hit her as she was walking. I can see why this theory would be more palatable for the family. The alternative is to believe that someone in their area had murdered Ramona. It would make it nearly impossible to continue to live amongst their neighbors, wondering if one of them was the one who hurt Ramona. Matilda, even while allowing for this to have been an accident, became an advocate for change after her responsible, caring, brilliant daughter was brushed off as a girl who must be unhappy at home and was off partying for the weekend. Even though Matilda told the RCMP over and over that Ramona wasn't like that, as much as she told them that Ramona would not have done this, she wouldn't have disappeared like this, she was not believed. And Matilda has spent years lobbying for better investigative procedures into missing children's cases, even when they are suspected runaways. Now, Ramona was missing for 10 months before her body was found. In that time, two more girls went missing and were found murdered. About three weeks after Ramona was last seen, 15-year-old Roxanne Tierra disappeared. 
Roxanne was born in Manitoba, but as an infant, she was placed with Mildred Tierra temporarily. Over the next few years, she would bounce between Mildred's home and her birth mother until she was three when Mildred got legal guardianship. Though she never formally adopted Roxanne, she considered her her daughter, and she was the baby sister to Mildred's grown children. Until Roxanne was 10, she lived in Abbotsford, which is near the Canadian-U.S. border between British Columbia and Washington State. After the fifth grade, though, Mildred moved them to northern British Columbia, where they lived in Quinell. This is about an hour and a half south of Prince George. It was in Quinell that Roxanne began to have some behavioral issues and ended up in a youth detention facility around the age of 12 for something fairly minor. While in there, Roxanne had to toughen up quickly. She was innocent and scared when she first got there and just realized she wasn't going to survive. She ended up befriending some kids who were more like her, but then she also started befriending some of the really rough kids and her family saw a marked change in her for the worse when she came back from the center. Roxanne had been a loving child, outgoing, and a good student. But now she was rebellious and, following her new friend's influence, began using drugs. Roxanne started running off to Prince George to hang out with her friends from the detainment center, and then she got into harder drugs like cocaine. Mildred took Roxanne to a psychiatrist, hoping that would help. But Roxanne was stubborn, and she wasn't cooperative. That's one of the difficulties with any type of medical intervention, whether we're talking physical health or mental health. If the patient won't follow the treatment, it's not going to work. In March of 1994, Roxanne dropped out of school and ran away from home, choosing to live on the streets of Prince George about 90 minutes away. In spite of this, she did stay in touch with her family and would come and go as she needed a safe place to stay. She wasn't a runaway who went completely off the grid. On June 27th or 28th, Roxanne returned home to visit and to pick up some clothes. The family had been trying to sit her down and convince her she needed drug treatment, something she had resisted in the past. But after three months on the streets, being sexually exploited, engaging in survival sex just to get by, Roxanne was more receptive. Roxanne could see that her path was not going to lead anywhere good in the future. She was reminded she had dreams. She wanted to become a fashion designer. And to do that, she was going to have to make changes. She even asked Mildred to make her an appointment at the drug counseling center, which Mildred did. But Roxanne insisted that night that she had to go back to Prince George to settle things and to get her stuff. Obviously, Mildred didn't want her to go back, but just getting her to agree to come back the next day and to go into rehab was huge. 
she didn't want to push back too much. But after Roxanne went back to Prince George, they never heard from her again. They waited a little bit, but when they didn't hear from her for a while, they went to Prince George to look for her. Mildred called Roxanne's probation officer, who also hadn't heard from her. The newspaper archives are not clear on when exactly she was reported missing. She was either reported missing as early as July 5th, which would have been about a week and a half since her family had last seen her, or as late as August 11th. She did make it back to Prince George because a friend of hers did see her there in early July. It was over Canada Day weekend, which is why the friend remembers the date, so that puts it the weekend of July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. This friend said that she saw Roxanne leave with a John, go around the side of a building, and then no one saw her again. Six weeks after this sighting, on August 17, 1994, someone found skeletal remains off Highway 16 near Burns Lake which is about a three-hour drive from where Roxanne was last seen. But it's only actually an hour and a half from where Ramona Wilson would later be found. It was estimated that the remains were there for about two months, which, with Roxanne being missing six weeks, put her on the list of possible matches. An autopsy would later confirm that the remains were of Roxanne. Though the cause of death could not be determined, it was ruled a homicide due to her body being in the woods right off the highway, where she was pretty obviously dumped. It looks very likely that she was killed elsewhere. The RCMP distributed her photograph fairly widely, hoping that someone would recognize her even if they didn't know her name. You'll see when I post her picture on social media that Roxanne had a very striking appearance. And so you can see why they would hope that people would remember her. If the RCMP have had any solid leads in her death in the last 25 years, they haven't shared them with the media. After Roxanne's death, there was a legal battle over her remains. Her birth mother wanted to have her buried in another province near her ancestral home. But Mildred had raised her, and she wanted Roxanne buried in British Columbia where she could visit her gravesite. Had Mildred legally adopted Roxanne, this wouldn't even be an issue. But without that clearly defined, and her mother still having parental rights, the court had to decide. In the end, they sided with Mildred and Roxanne was finally laid to rest in British Columbia months later, in December 1994. The day after Roxanne's funeral, which was four months after she was found, we have our last High Wave Tears victim we are talking about today. Sadly, this was a friend of Roxanne's, 15-year-old Alicia Germain, who went by Leah. She and Roxanne knew each other from the streets of Prince George, where they lived very similar lifestyles. Like Roxanne's family, Leah's family tried to get her off drugs and off the streets. She had been such an affectionate little kid who loved to sing and dance, and it was so hard for her family 
to see that spark leave her. Her parents separated when she was 14, which she took very badly and became pretty much impossible to discipline. Leah's home life was tumultuous, and she ran away. She was in a few foster placements and group homes, but all of those were just poor fits, and she would leave them as soon as she could. Leah had a tough exterior, but she was actually very sensitive, which I don't think is a huge surprise. This might be a trite saying, but I think it's true here. The kids who make themselves the most unlovable tend to be the ones who need love the most. Leah was very into the art and music and poetry coffeehouse scene in Prince George. That's where her passions were. And like Roxanne, Leah saw that the only way to move forward in her life was to get off the streets. She was trying to stay sober, and she had stopped engaging in sex for money for a couple of weeks before her death. She hoped to enroll back in the 10th grade, and she had a plan to get back on track so she could eventually graduate more or less on time. On December 9, 1994, Leah attended the annual Christmas dinner for homeless teens at the Native Friendship Center in Prince George. This is a popular event that had around 150 kids attending. I know Prince George isn't a little town. It has 74,000 people, so 150 street kids shouldn't be a startling statistic, but somehow it still is. It is still so sad. Studies of homeless youth in Canada have shown that Indigenous youth are overrepresented. But beyond that, Indigenous homeless teens are at a greater risk than their non-Indigenous homeless peers. Victimization is even higher when you are looking at Indigenous youth who are female and or are LGBTQ or two-spirit. Recent nationwide studies have called for specific interventions for Native youth experiencing homelessness, and the Native Friendship Center hosting this dinner and other similar outreach decades ago shows us that once again, the communities have been doing the work all along with little help. Our governments are just playing catch-up at this point. Anyway, back to December 1994. Leah went to this dinner, and after eating, Leah told someone there that she was heading out for a bit, but would be back and to save a present for her. The volunteer found a couple of things and put them aside. Leah left sometime between 7 and 8 p.m., she never returned. She was last seen in downtown Prince George, not far from the center, no later than 10 p.m. I mean, it's not like people were staring at their watches, so this time is a bit of an estimate. Then at 11.15 p.m., three teen boys were cutting across a field behind an elementary school on the outskirts of Prince George, not far from Highway 16 and they found Leah's body. It was six days after she turned 15. Unlike the other Highway of Tears victims who have been found, Leah was found very soon after death, within an hour. She was found fully dressed and with no obvious evidence of sexual assault. 
Her cause of death was stabbing. I've read that a sketch was made in the case, but I couldn't find a digital scan of a newspaper that ran it. There was also some information released about a truck that was seen in the area near where Leah had kept her belongings. According to the book Highway of Tears that I mentioned at the top of the episode, female DNA was found at the scene, DNA that was not Leah's and they have not yet matched. It's also said that there is a male suspect in this case, but when the prosecutor got the evidence in front of him, there just wasn't enough to press charges. It was a month after Leah's murder that police got that tip about where Ramona could be found, and then, of course, three more months before they did find her. Ramona's disappearance and the discovery of her body are very tragic bookends to this very tragic period. Eventually, profilers who came in to look over some of these cases in northern British Columbia to look for similarities that might link them said that the cases of Ramona, Roxanne, and Leah may be linked. They can't say definitely, just that they were similar enough that it's a possibility. And these three cases are what started the Highway of Tears task force in 2005 and what made the RCMP come up with their criteria for being included on the task force's list. Of course, I saw newspaper articles back in the 1970s linking some of these Highway of Tears cases, so it is not like this is a new idea. It was around the mid-90s that the phrase Highway of Tears started becoming more widely used. And then, of course, not until 2005 that the EPANA task force was formed. The letter E comes from the E division of the RCMP, which is who has jurisdiction over British Columbia. And then Pana is the Inuit goddess who cares for souls in the underworld. Over the nearly 15 years of the task force, it has seen budget cuts and staffing cuts as they have finished combing over the existing case files. Tips are still followed up on as they come in, but those have slowed as the oldest case on the list occurred 50 years ago, and most of the cases are at least 25 years old. There is a fear that the task force will eventually hit the end of these leads, the end of the evidence, and the end of finding answers for the families and communities who were devastated by these crimes. But in the event anyone listening now knows anything about the murders of Ramona, Roxanne, or Leah, or any other victim of the Highway of Tears, you can call the RCMP tip line at 1-877-543-4822. Thank you for listening to Crimelines. You can follow me on Facebook by searching Crimelines Podcast, Twitter at Crimelines Pod, and Instagram at Crimelines True Crime. Feel free to follow my personal Instagram at CharlieNKC. You can also find the show on Patreon and Himalaya Plus, where I post early and ad-free episodes, as well as a monthly bonus episode. 
Crime Lines is produced by Basement Fort Productions, LLC. Visit our website, basementfort.com, for more information, including the sources for each episode. And while you're at it, go listen to Rusty Hinges, a comedic, mystery, true crime, and history show hosted by the one and only Lars and written by me, Charlie. 